Well, the midterm elections are over, and what we seem to be learning about this election is that Americans, although they're politically polarized, many Americans recognize that our country is and has been heading in the wrong direction for quite some time, and that conservative policies are preferable to Democrat policies that have wrecked our successes and forward momentum here at home and in the world. Many Americans recognized that the left's ideologies and policies had done nothing more than speed up the downward spiral in this country, both economically and culturally. And the people had come in unprecedented numbers to make the government understand this. And amazingly, in places like New York, Republicans made substantial gains. We made red waves here and there across the country, and the biggest wave being in Florida. And we now recognize that we have much more work to do to convince the rest of the American people, the young, the unrealistically idealistic, and the Democrat supporters of all ages, and even those who support fundamentally transforming America into something it was never intended to be, that our republic is exceptional in the world. And that what we have to offer will not only benefit the free man and free woman, but make our country stronger than even we could imagine it. If only we rely on ourselves as individuals and together as a people and reject the idea that we should rely on the government for anything. Ladies and gentlemen, we have about a month before we enter into 2023 and the message going into the new year is this. Republicans are still strong and only getting stronger. Conservatism is making headway and we are making a difference in places we never thought possible before. And the message to the dedicated communist, racist, leftist everywhere is this. Abandon your failed objectives. Abandon the lies that you've been told for decades. Embrace a better way of doing things because we're aiming to put hardworking Americans in America first. We've only begun to lay the foundations. And if you thought that the left was genuinely nervous that they would lose all power in this election, just wait until 2024. This is the Last Stand Podcast, standing for the freedom of speech and the expression of righteous American opinion down here on the ground in the good old USA. Coming in hot from the Carolina Command Center, I'm your less than humble host, Wild Bill of the Wild Bill fame. I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right. Welcome back, folks. You're back. I'm back. We're, we're both back uh, for yet another awesome and inspiring episode of The Last Stand. 
Today I want to talk about the midterm elections and what we saw, what we thought we saw, what we'd hoped for, and what we got, and what all that means for you, for me, for every red-blooded, freedom-loving American, male and female. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving. It seems that every year we have some sort of push by the left to redefine, recharacterize, revise, and rewrite history, and the holidays aren't exempt from that effort. Oh no. In fact, they're actively undermining every Christian holiday event precisely by messing with history and by getting people to focus on one or two aspects of it in order to poison our holidays today. And then, I don't know, whatever the moment calls for, we'll talk about it. Uh, Because we do that here from time to time. Whatever it is that we talk about here, I know that I am privileged to say what it is that most of you all are thinking about. So without further ado, (laughs) let's dance. So, Thanksgiving's come and gone. Uh, I hope that every one of you had an excellent Thanksgiving and were able to gather with family and friends. Uh, and uh, I hope that um, <laughs> I hope that politics didn't cause any serious complications. Okay, uh, you know because you know. Look, every year, uh, or increasingly every year, I don't know, uh, but every year it seems uh, during the holidays. Uh, you know, we hear the cries for leaving politics, religion, and whatever else that inflames the passions and sensitivities of the people uh, out of Thanksgiving and Christmas season, right? Uh, you know, leave politics out of Thanksgiving and Christmas and all of that. We hear that, you know, every year. Uh, and, I, and I can understand that, okay? I get it. Uh, the political and religious uh, discussions, uh, those topics can be very dividing topics of discussion, all right, especially among family members, all right? Uh, growing up as a kid, I don't remember politics being a topic of discussion uh, at the table at any time, uh, but as I got older, okay, especially in the last few decades, uh, politics would eventually come up and there'd be some very spirited discussions at the dinner table, even on the holidays, right? Now, I've never witnessed this personally, but we all know uh, and we all heard the stories uh, where families, you know, getting together at the holiday dinner table, uh, you know, uh, by the time dinner was over, politics and social issues had been discussed, argued over, and (laughs) members of the family, you know, uh, left in a huff, vowing to never again grace the table of so-and-so at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever the occasion might be. Okay, we've all heard those stories. Uh, It happens, right? I know it, you know it, it happens, right? And that's because, you know, look, I've always maintained that uh, people care about the country. They care about what happens in the country, and they care about what happens to the country, okay? Uh, Sometimes you just can't stop people, uh, even family members, from talking about the things that they care about, okay? Whatever that happens to be. All right. And many times it happens to be uh, politics and the goings on in this country. All right. Uh, I mean, I mean, hell, it, it, it happens without anyone really trying to make it happen. Right. 
<laughs> I, you know, look, I went to uh, a friend's house. Uh, I was invited by uh, him and his family uh, to come and celebrate Thanksgiving. And after this fantastic dinner, by the way, all right, cooked by uh, my buddy, who happens to be my old platoon sergeant, uh, and his wife, okay, they both cooked dinner. Uh, I, I don't even know how we got into the political realm or, or the discussion that we had. We'd, we'd somehow gotten into this discussion uh, over this question. And the question that was posed was something to the effect of, have you ever wondered what it was that you were missing or not doing or didn't know about that prevented you from becoming rich? Like, what are the rich doing that enable the rich to continue being rich? Now, I have to mention this, this next part because as of the day before Thanksgiving, I can't recall ever having a political or cultural discussion uh, with a 20-something-year-old, okay? Because we just, you know, 20-somethings and I don't walk in the same circles, folks. I know, hard to believe. Uh, we, do, we just don't go to the same places. Uh, you know, we grew up in different times from each other. Uh, our friends aren't the same. We're just different, okay, because of age, circumstances, and experience in education, okay? It's, it's the age gap, all right? And, uh, and I admit it, I kind of regret that, okay, simply because there's so much that they could learn from older folks, okay? And, and, and there's, there's much that I could learn from them, okay? Uh, but there's so much that we could discuss and understand about each other, uh, you know, talking about uh, the topics of the day, right? Uh, but let's be honest, all right? The younger generations just don't have the practical and realistic wisdom that the older folks do, okay? They don't have the perspectives that older folks do, all right? And, and, the, and the younger generations are unfortunately being misled by social media, news media, uh, schools, you know, the education systems controlled by uh, ideologues, okay? Uh, they're being misled by politicians who happen to be from my generation they're being manipulated by their emotions folks and and they're being manipulated uh you know by their sense of right and wrong and fair and unfair okay but um you know i think i'd like to have a discussion okay uh about the topics of the day uh with a 20 year old something okay as long as they could suspend what they've been told to believe and adhere to what they've been indoctrinated with, uh, and to actually look at the evidence of history and the benefit of what came before in history and why it benefits all of us today, right? Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't mind having those kind of discussions, uh, but I haven't been able to do that uh, as far as I can remember prior to Thanksgiving uh, this year. But no shit, there I was in the same room having a discussion with people who are at least 10 years younger than me and a young kid who was 22 years old, 21 or 22. I can't, I can't remember. Uh, he's young as shit. Okay. Compared to me. All right. Uh, and the person who asked the question, by the way, wasn't the 22 year old. And before I could say what it was that I thought about this, this question, uh, with regard to what rich people were doing to be rich, uh, to continue being rich, uh, the 22-year-old uh, went ahead and answered the question without hesitation and with conviction, I might add, 
Okay. You want to know what his answer was? <laughs> his answer was without hesitation, mind you, that the rich work. They actually work. The rich work for their money in some way, shape or form. They work. Now, it, it, there was none of the usual stuff uh, coming from this kid that I hear from uh, a lot of the younger generations that you see uh, or that you hear from at colleges and things like that. Uh, none of the usual stuff like, uh, you know, the rich steal it from the working people. OK, uh, they're greedy, rich people uh, or they manipulate government into making policies that enable them to get rich, to stay rich, and to keep on getting richer while the poor get poorer, okay? None of that stuff was coming out of this kid's mouth. It was, they work. Now, this kid is what I would characterize as Shaggy, okay? You know who Shaggy was from Scooby-Doo, the cartoon? Shaggy was one of the characters from Scooby-Doo, okay? The old 1970s cartoon starring a group of meddling kids who went about solving mysteries involving ghosts, goblins, uh, or some strange thing that they'd run into, right? Shaggy uh, was the kind of scaredy cat character, okay? He, he was a scaredy cat, why are we here kind of guy, all right? Uh, but he, he was always there to go along with the other, you know, characters in the cartoon who wanted to solve this mystery, right? And, of course, Scooby-Doo was the dog. That was his best friend. Shaggy, <laughs> Shaggy was always hungry, all right? Uh, there wasn't one episode. I, I, I watched Sha uh, uh, Scooby-Doo when I was a kid, okay? And there wasn't one episode that I remember where Shaggy and Scooby-Doo didn't find themselves making this huge, uh, you know, triple-decker sandwich uh, or, or something involving food or uh, Scooby Snack, right? The Scooby Snack, all right? Uh, there wasn't an episode that I remember where they weren't doing that, okay? They, they were always hungry at some point in the cartoon, I'm so scared. I wish I had a ham sandwich to calm my nerves. <laughs> well, what do you know? A ham sandwich. Are you all right? Yeah. Just as soon as I have six or seven sandwiches. He's all right, all right. <laughs> uh, and many people have had theories as to why this was the case. <laughs> Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up, folks. All right. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that here. But anyway, 
So Shaggy, this, this kid uh, that I'm talking to, uh, goes into this explanation uh, that in order for the rich to be rich, they would have had to have done something to earn, maintain, and perpetuate their wealth. Uh, you know, his feeling was that there's not a rich person out there uh, who is rich or stays rich unless they do something to earn the money uh, and to keep the money going. All right. Now, <laughs> I didn't want to get into the number of you know people in government who are suspected to have obtained a financial status while in office. Uh, that they otherwise wouldn't have achieved in regular life uh, due to the nefarious and even criminal activity that they engaged in, okay? I didn't even want to get into all that. <laughs> but, uh, but the kid was right, okay? In some way, shape, or form, those who had become wealthy in industry uh, had worked to become rich, okay? Now, you know, the person who had asked the question was, you know, like, no, I mean the rich that don't do anything, okay? That was their, their, their clarification on the question. Uh, the rich that don't do anything. They don't work. They don't do anything. They just keep getting rich, uh, and they kept, you know, they're getting richer, okay? And they don't do anything. Uh, and, and, and while this clarification is being made, I could, I, I'm looking at this kid's face, and I could see the look of astonishment on his face, Okay? <laughs> he simply could not fathom that anyone could believe that those who had become wealthy didn't in some way, shape, or form work to achieve their wealth. And to think that they did absolutely nothing to become rich was a foreign concept to him. Okay? Now, obviously, you know, we have people that inherit a lot of money in the world, uh, you know, where, where they just fell into to family money or something like that. Uh, you know, obviously there are people out there who win lotteries and stuff like that and they become rich overnight and things like that. But, you know, in terms of uh, the wealthy in this country, you know, his thought was that the rich do something to achieve their wealth. And, you know, in talking with him, uh, he cited people like Elon Musk, uh, and even uh, Zuckerberg uh, from the Book of Face uh, as people who had worked and continue to work on the products and services that made them wealthy in the first place. Okay. Uh, it was the first time in a very long time, folks. In fact, I can't even remember a time. Uh, this is the first time that I had heard a 22-year-old kid expound on any issue uh, and that I agreed with where he was going with it. Okay. And the funny thing is, while he talked about issues, all right, the topics of the day that are at the forefront of discussion uh, among the people these days, he said uh, that he didn't have an opinion on these things because he simply didn't know what he was talking about. In other words, he hadn't had enough experience in life to know how these issues really affected his life. Okay? This is extraordinary. All right. And what it and, and what made it even more extraordinary was that when he was done explaining what he understood and what he didn't understand, uh, what he knew and what he didn't know, he actually wanted to hear my explanation and clarifications on issues that we were discussing, giving him further understanding uh, and context. It was the damnedest thing, folks. Uh, you know, at, at, at the end of our conversation, 
I, I decided right then that I wanted this kid as a guest on the show. Okay. How I'm going to do it and when I'm going to do it is the question. Uh, but I got to get this kid on. Okay. Uh, look, folks, it's not that I think this kid's a unicorn and I got to have him on the show. Uh, I, I'm certain that there are many kids in their 20s who think like he does. Okay. Uh, you know, there's probably many kids his age that agrees with a conservative minded individual like myself. Okay. Uh, but I have to believe that, that he and, and other people like him, uh, I have to believe that they're a minority in that age group. Okay. So I really want to ask this kid questions and get his thoughts about some of the matters of import affecting our, our, our country and culture today. Uh, and I want to do it, uh, where he's unimpeded. Uh, and I want to do it without interruption so that I can take it all in and go through it all and then opine on what I heard from this kid. All right. Uh, I'm going to work on it. You can bet I'm going to work on it. Okay. One of these days I'm having that kid on this show. All right. He's probably going to be 23 before, before I can get him on, but uh, I'm going to get him on. Okay. Uh, it was, it was just, it, it was a new experience for me, folks. Okay. Um, so that was the day, right? Dinner, discussion, uh, and of course there was drinking, okay? I had, <laughs> I had imbibed uh, two types of alcoholic beverages, uh, Sexton's Irish Whiskey and Woodford Reserve Kentucky Wheat Bourbon. Uh, all good stuff, right? Uh, it was a good day. I rode a tractor, okay? I rode a diesel tractor, a farm tractor. Uh, I had never done that before. Uh, that was very cool. Uh, but in the end, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think we were all thankful for the time that we spent together uh, that day. Okay. Uh, obviously thankful for the good food uh, and for good friends. Okay. The food, by the way, was fantastic. Uh, it, it, was, it was just amazing. All of it was good. We never did talk about the actual Thanksgiving day, though. All right. And, and to be honest, it hadn't even occurred to me to bring it up. Uh, but over the last couple of days, <clears throat> over the last couple of days prior to Thanksgiving Day, uh, I'd been seeing posts and comments uh, here and there on the Book of Face uh, where people were saying, you know, it's not Thanksgiving. It's not a day of Thanksgiving. Uh, it's it's Massacre Day. OK, <laughs> it's Happy Massacre Day, folks. Uh, and that, you know, Thanksgiving Day was actually a day of mourning for people, uh, especially for Native American Indians, uh, that they never celebrated Thanksgiving and all that hogwash, okay? Uh, one comment that I remember reading was, Happy Massacre Day, everyone. I, I personally do not celebrate this day, but if you do, take some time out of your day and research the 1637 massacre. And the reason why many Natives see this day as a day of mourning. Natives do not celebrate Abraham Lincoln either. And then she posted a link to uh, a YouTube video called Dakota 38. <laughs> and I'm reading this and I'm like, here we go. Here we go. You know, the problem that I have with people like this, uh, and people like this uh, typically are people who are on the left, okay? But I have no idea, you know, what the, what the political, you know, leanings are of this person that posted this thing. Uh, but the problem that I have with people on the left and people like this who post things like this is that they use the colors of the past to paint today. 
All right. They try to recharacterize holidays such as Thanksgiving because of the past tragedies that took place on or around the holiday being celebrated. Okay. They purposefully try to dampen the spirits of the holiday and shame people into rejecting it or to be less celebratory due to a sense of embarrassment uh, that people should have uh, of being descendant of the white man. Okay. That's what it comes down to. I mean, they do the same thing with Christmas. All right. They do, they do the same thing with the 4th of July or any holiday or celebration that brings people together today. What the hell people there people with their cars out there. Uh, you know, and in doing so, they segregate themselves from the concept and idea and virtue that is America. What is going on out there? Somebody's out there, I think, with a... There's a Dodge Challenger uh, and a Mustang out here that uh, every once in a while, they get, I don't know, they get the itch to go out there and just start racing around the block. It's crazy. Have fun now, guys. Uh, So anyway, where was I? (laughs) In, In posting things like this and doing things like this, Uh, These kind of people segregate themselves from the concept and ideas uh, that is America, the virtue that is America. Now, look, we all know that throughout history, there are events that are remembered because of the brutality of the event, right? Uh, The history in this world is a history of war, oppression, conquest, those kind of things. Uh, And there have been examples of men, you know, evil men doing evil things to other people throughout history. But that doesn't negate the meaning of the holiday or our efforts here to include everyone in the celebration of the holiday uh, and to participate in the meaning of that holiday. And here we have an individual who's using one tragedy from an event that took place 160 years ago where there were good and bad on both sides of a conflict and whereby an injustice or a perceived injustice took place against a people or a group of people that are no longer alive and whereby this country has moved on from that and continues to work to fulfill the meaning and purpose of the holiday celebrated by anyone and everyone who wishes to do so. Now, before people start losing their minds here, I'm not saying that we shouldn't remember history or, or even the dark times of history. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that we should ignore historical events that were tragic and perpetrated by less than honorable men. We should remember where we come from and how far we've come in making right the wrongs of the past. But to use these tragic events in the past uh, in order to virtue signal and to break apart the foundations of something good in this country is just asinine to me. And it'll do nothing but contribute to the fundamental transformation of a country Uh, you know, making it something that it was never meant to be. We don't use history to bludgeon people into being ashamed of who they are or where they come from. And we certainly don't use history to recharacterize the meaningful and good historical event in order to further uh, an agenda uh, or or, or a dishonest message about people today, right? We just don't do that. We shouldn't do that. So, what is the Dakota 38 story, uh, and why does she mention it in this way, uh, in this post, uh, and why is she using it in the way that, that, that she's using it, 
right? Uh, this, this commenter in this thread, uh, Crystal Black Owl, okay? Um, what's the Dakota 38? Well, we're going to get into it. Let's, let's, uh, let's dig in. The Dakota War of 1862, also known as the Sioux Uprising, the Dakota Uprising, the Sioux Outbreak of 1862, the Dakota Conflict, the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, or Little Crow's War, was an armed conflict between the United States and several bands of Eastern Dakota, also known as the Santee Sioux. It began on August 18, 1862, at the Lower Sioux Agency along the Minnesota River in southwest Minnesota. The Eastern Dakota were pressured into ceding large tracts of land to the United States in a series of treaties signed in 1837, 1851, and 1858 in exchange for cash annuities, debt payments, and other provisions. All four bands of Eastern Dakota Indian tribes were displaced and reluctantly moved to a reservation that was 20 miles wide, 10 miles on both sides of the Minnesota River. There, they were encouraged by U.S. Indian agents to become farmers rather than continue their hunting traditions. Meanwhile, the settler population in the Minnesota Territory had grown from 6,077 in 1850 to 172,000 in 1860 after it had become a state. A crop failure in 1861 followed by a harsh winter along with poor hunting due to the depletion of wild game led to starvation and severe hardship for many of the Eastern Dakota. In the summer of 1862, tensions between the Eastern Dakota, the traders, and the Indian agents had reached a breaking point because the Indian agents had been late with U.S. government annuity payments owed to the Eastern Dakota. The traders had refused to extend credit to the tribesmen for food, in part because the traders suspected that the payments might not arrive at all due to the American Civil War. On August 17, 1862, four young Native men killed five white settlers in Acton, Minnesota. That night, a faction led by Chief Little Crow decided to attack the Lower Sioux Agency the next morning in an effort to drive out all the settlers out of Minnesota. In the weeks that followed, Dakota warriors attacked and killed hundreds of settlers, causing thousands to flee the area, and took hundreds of mixed blood and white hostages, almost all women and children. The demands of the Civil War slowed the U.S. government response, but on September 23rd, an army of volunteer infantry, artillery, and citizen militia assembled by Governor Alexander Ramsey and led by Colonel Henry Hastings Sibley finally defeated Little Crow at the Battle of Wood Lake. By the end of the war, 358 settlers had been killed, in addition to 77 soldiers and 29 volunteer militia. The total number of Dakota casualties is unknown. On September 26th, 269 mixed blood and white hostages were released to Sibley's troops at Camp Release. Approximately 2,000 Dakota had surrendered or were taken into custody, including at least 1,658 non-combatants, as well as those who had opposed the war and helped to free the hostages. Meanwhile, Little Crow and a group of 150 to 250 followers had fled to the northern plains of the Dakota Territory and into Canada. 
In less than six weeks, a military commission composed of officers from the Minnesota Volunteer Infantry sentenced 303 Dakota men to death. President Abraham Lincoln reviewed the convictions and approved death sentences for 39 out of the 303. On December 26th, 38 were hanged in Mankato, Minnesota, with one getting a reprieve. This was the largest one-day mass execution in American history. The United States Congress abolished the Eastern Dakota and Ho-Chunk reservations in Minnesota and declared their treaties null and void. In May 1863, the Eastern Dakota and Ho-Chunk imprisoned at Fort Snelling were exiled from Minnesota. They were placed on riverboats and sent to a reservation in present-day South Dakota. The Ho-Chunk were also initially forced to the Crow Creek Reservation, but later moved to Nebraska near the Omaha people to form the Winnebago Reservation. In 2012 and 13, Ramsey's call for the Dakota to be exterminated or driven forever beyond the borders of the state was repudiated. In 2019, an apology was issued to the Dakota people for 150 years of trauma inflicted on native people at the hands of the state government. The Minnesota Historical Society transferred ownership of 115 acres of land back to the Lower Sioux Indian community, including about half the lands near the Lower Sioux Agency and part of the historic site of the battle. Here is the breakdown of the chain of events that led to the conflict and the final judgment rendered to the Dakota 38. When Minnesota became a state in 1858, representatives of several Dakota bands led by Little Crow traveled to Washington to negotiate about enforcing existing treaties. But instead, they lost the northern half of the reservation along the Minnesota River. This was a major blow to the standing of Little Crow in the Dakota community. The land was divided into townships and plots for settlement. Logging and agriculture on these plots eliminated surrounding forests and prairies, which interrupted the Dakota's annual cycle of farming, hunting, fishing, and gathering rice. Hunting by settlers dramatically reduced the wild game available, such as bison, elk, deer, and bear. Not only did this decrease the meat available for survival of the Dakota in southern and western Minnesota, but it directly reduced their ability to sell furs to traders for additional supplies. Although payments were guaranteed, the U.S. government was two months behind on both money and food when the war started because of men who were stealing food. The federal government was also preoccupied by waging the Civil War. Most land in the River Valley was not arable, and hunting could no longer support the Dakota community. The Dakota became increasingly discontented over their losses. The land, non-payment of annuities, past broken treaties, plus food shortages and famine following a crop failure. Tensions increased through the summer of 1862. On January 1st, George E.H. Day, who was a special commissioner on Dakota affairs, wrote a letter to President Lincoln. Day was an attorney from St. Anthony who had been commissioned to look into the complaints of the Sioux. In a letter he wrote, I have discovered numerous violations of law and many frauds committed by past agents and a superintendent. I think I can establish frauds to the amount from 
$20,000 to $100,000 and satisfy any reasonable intelligent man that the Indians whom I have visited in this state and in Wisconsin have been defrauded of more than $100,000 in or during the four years past. The superintendent, Major Colin alone, has saved, as all his friends say, more than $100,000 in four years out of a salary of $2,000 a year and all the agents whose salaries are $1,500 a year have become rich. Day also accused Clark Wallace Thompson, Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Northern Superintendency, of fraud. On August 4, 1862, representatives of the Northern Sisseton and Wapitan Dakota bands met at the Upper Sioux Agency in the northwestern part of the reservation and successfully negotiated to obtain food. When two other bands of the Dakota turned to the Lower Sioux Agency for supplies on August 15th, they were rejected. Indian agent Thomas Galbraith managed the area and would not distribute the food to these bands without payment. At a meeting of the Dakota, the U.S. government and local traders, the Dakota representatives asked the representative of the government traders, Andrew Jackson Myrick, to sell them food on credit. His response was said to be, so far as I'm concerned, if they are hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. But the context of Myrick's comment at the time, in early August of 1862, is historically unclear. Another version of this story is that Myrick was referring to the Dakota women who are already combing the floor of the Fort's stables for any unprocessed oats to feed their starving children, along with grass. The effect of Myrick's statement on Little Crow and his band was clear. In a letter to General Sibley, Little Crow said it was a major reason for commencing the war. In a letter he wrote, Dear Sir, for what reason we have commenced this war, I will tell you. It is on account of Major Galbraith. We made a treaty with the government for what little we do get, and then can't get any of it till our children are dying with hunger. Myrick told the Indians that they would eat grass or their own dung. On August 16, 1862, the treaty payments to the Dakota arrived in St. Paul, Minnesota, and were brought to Fort Ridgely the next day. They arrived too late to prevent the violence. On August 17, 1862, four young Dakota men on a hunting trip killed five settlers near a settlement in Acton Township, Minnesota. Some accounts say that the men acted on a dare following an argument about whether or not they should steal eggs. Others say that the men were provoked when the farmer refused to give them food or water or liquor. The victims included Robinson Jones, who ran a post office, a lodge, and a store and four others, including his wife and a 15-year-old adopted daughter. Realizing that they were in trouble, these four men returned to Rice Creek Village to tell their story to Red Middle Voice, the head of their band. They also told their story to Cutnose, the head soldier of their lodge. Red Middle Voice lobbied his nephew, Chief Shakopee, for support, and together they traveled to Little Crow's village near the Lower Sioux Agency. In the middle of the night, a war council was convened at Little Crow's house, also including other tribal leaders such as Mankato, Wabasha, Traveling Hale, and Big Eagle. 
The leaders were divided about the course of action to take. According to many accounts, Little Crow himself had initially been against an uprising and agreed to lead it only after an angry young brave called him a coward. By daybreak, Little Crow had ordered an attack on the Lower Sioux Agency to take place that morning. On August 18, 1862, Little Crow led a group in a surprise attack on the Lower Sioux Agency. Trader Andrew Myrick was among the first who were killed. While wounded, he escaped through an attic window, but was gunned down while running for the cornfields. Myrick's decapitated head was later found with grass stuffed into his mouth. In retaliation for Myrick's response, let them eat grass. Killing was suspended for a time while the attackers turned their attention to raiding the stores for flour, pork, clothing, whiskey, guns and ammunition, allowing others to flee for Fort Ridgely, 14 miles away. A total of 13 clerks, traders, and government workers were killed at the agency. Another seven were killed as they fled. Ten were taken captive, and approximately 47 people had escaped. Bravo Company of the 5th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry Regiment sent troops from Fort Ridgely to quell the uprising, and they were defeated at the Battle of Redwood Ferry. 24 soldiers, including the party's commander, were killed in the battle. Throughout the day, Dakota war parties swept the Minnesota River Valley and near vicinity, killing many settlers. Numerous settlements, including the townships of Milford, Leavenworth, and Sacred Heart, were surrounded and burned, and their populations nearly exterminated. During the chaos of the initial attacks, some Dakota tried to warn their friends at the Lower Sioux Agency to flee. Even those participating in the attacks made exceptions for who was killed. Reverend Samuel Hinman later recounted that Little Crow himself had come to the Episcopal Mission Church when the shooting started. He glared at him and then left, allowing Hinman and his assistant, Emily West, to escape to Fort Ridgely. George Spencer, a clerk in the trading store, credited Little Crow's head soldier for saving his life by placing him under his protection. Spencer then became one of the few white men taken captive during the war. The rest of the captives were predominantly women and children. A large number of captives were mixed blood, Dakota. Although there were repeated threats against the lives of these mixed blood settlers, even the most violent warriors exercised restraint when reminded that by killing mixed blood Dakota, they would risk retribution from their victims' full blood kinsmen. The large number of captives taken in the early days of the conflict presented a dilemma for the Dakota War leaders. Big Eagle and others argued that they should be returned to the fort. But Little Crow insisted that they were valuable to the war effort and should be kept as hostages for their own protection. While the captives were initially held by the soldiers who had captured them, as the days progressed, the logistics of feeding and taking care of the captives were divided up more broadly among the families in Little Crow's camp. The subject of rape and abuse of captives during the Dakota War is controversial. Of the white women and girls who were taken captive over the course of the war, up to 40 were between the ages of 12 and 40. Historian Gary Clayton Anderson states that nearly all of the young girls taken captive and most of the middle-aged women 
were forced into relationships which Dakota men perceived as marriage. He lists the chance to obtain a wife as one of the many different motives that young Dakota warriors had for participating in the early days of the conflict, along with revenge, plunder, and the chance to gain honors in warfare. There was at least one widely reported case of rape on the first evening of the conflict in August 18, 1862. There were also three well-documented cases of female captives who were adopted and protected by Dakota families from potential aggressors. There were skirmishes and battles that led to the final battle of Wood Lake. This battle ended after about two hours as Little Crow and the Dakota warriors retreated in disorder. Chief Mankato was killed in the battle by a cannonball. Big Eagle later explained that hundreds of Dakota fighters were unable to get involved or fire a shot in the battle because they had been positioned too far out. Sibley decided not to pursue the retreating Dakota, mainly because he lacked the cavalry to do so. On his orders, Sibley's men recovered and buried 14 fallen Dakota. The exact Dakota losses are unknown, but the fight effectively ended the war. Sibley lost seven men, and another 34 were seriously wounded. At Camp Release on September 26, 1862, the Dakota Peace Party handed over 269 former prisoners to the troops commanded by Colonel Sibley. The captives included 162 mixed bloods and 107 whites, mostly women and children, who had been held hostage by the hostile Dakota camp, which broke up as Little Crow and some of his followers fled to the Northern Plains. In the nights that followed, a growing number of warriors who had participated in battles quietly joined the friendly Dakota at Camp Release. Many did not want to spend the winter on the plains and were persuaded by Sibley's earlier promise to punish only those who had killed settlers. The surrendered Dakota warriors and their families were held while military trials took place from September to November in 1862. Of the 498 trials, 303 men were convicted and sentenced to death. President Lincoln commuted the sentences of all but 38. A few weeks prior to the execution, the convicted men were sent to Mankato, while 1,658 Indians and mixed bloods, including their families and the friendly Dakota, were sent to a compound south of Fort Snelling. The Dakota 38 refers to the 38 Dakota Native Americans who were found guilty and then hanged in 1862 for crimes such as rape and murder in southwest Minnesota. On September 27, 1862, Colonel Henry Hastings Sibley ordered the creation of a military commission to conduct trials of the Dakota. One year later, the Judge Advocate General determined that Sibley did not have the authority to convene these trials of the Dakota due to his level of prejudice and that his actions had violated Article 65 of the United States Articles of War. However, by then, the executions had already occurred and the American Civil War continued to distract the U.S. government. The trials themselves were deficient in many ways, even by military standards, and the officers who oversaw them did not conduct them according to military law. The 400-odd sum numbers of trials commenced on 28 September 1862 and were completed on November 3rd. Some lasted less than five minutes apiece. The trials also 
were conducted in an atmosphere of racist hostility toward the defendants, expressed by the citizenry, the elected officials of the state of Minnesota, and by the men conducting the trials themselves. By November 3rd, the military commission had held trials of 392 Dakota men, with as many as 42 tried in a single day. Not surprisingly, given the social explosive conditions under which the trials took place, by November 7th, the verdicts were in. The military commission announced that 303 Sioux prisoners had been convicted of murder and rape and were sentenced to death. President Lincoln was informed by Major General John Pope of the sentences on November 10, 1862, in a telegraphic dispatch from Minnesota. Lincoln's response to Pope was, please forward as soon as possible the full and complete record of these convictions. And if the record does not indicate the more guilty and influential of the culprits, please have a careful statement made on these points and forward them to me. Please send all by mail. When the death sentences were made public, Henry Whipple, the Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota and a reformer of U.S. Indian policy, responded by publishing an open letter. He also went to Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1862 to urge Lincoln to proceed with leniency. On the other hand, General Pope and Minnesota Senator Morton S. Wilkinson warned Lincoln that the white population opposed leniency. Governor Ramsey warned Lincoln that unless all 303 Sioux were executed, private revenge would, on all this border, take the place of official judgment on these Indians. Lincoln, despite his many other pressing responsibilities in running the country and conducting the Civil War, completed his review of the transcripts of the 303 trials with the help of two trusted White House lawyers in under a month. On December 11, 1862, he addressed the Senate regarding his final decision, as he had been requested to do by a resolution passed by that body on December 5th. In a letter he is quoted as saying, anxious to not act with so much clemency as to encourage another outbreak on the one hand, nor with so much severity as to be real cruelty on the other, I caused a careful examination of the records of the trials to be made in view of first ordering the execution of such as had been proved guilty of violating females. Contrary to my expectations, only two of this class were found. I then directed a further examination and a classification of all who were proven to have participated in massacres as distinguished from participation in battles. This class numbered 40 and included the two convicted of female violation. One of the number is strongly recommended by the commission which tried them for commutation to 10 years imprisonment. I have ordered the other 39 to be executed on Friday the 19th instant. In the end, Lincoln commuted the death sentences of 264 prisoners, but he allowed the execution of 39 men. However, on December 23rd, Lincoln suspended the execution of one of the condemned men after General Sibley telegraphed that new information led him to doubt the prisoner's guilt. Thus, the number of condemned men was reduced to the final 38. Even partial clemency resulted in protests from Minnesota, which persisted until the Secretary of the Interior offered Minnesotans reasonable compensation for the depredations committed. Republicans didn't fare as well in Minnesota in the 1864 election as they had before, 
Ramsey, who was by then a senator, informed Lincoln that more hangings would have resulted in a larger electoral majority. But President Lincoln reportedly replied, I could not afford to hang men for more votes. So, now you know more than you ever wanted to know the story of the Dakota 38, okay? Uh, Crystal Black Owl's assertions that Thanksgiving was a day of massacre against American Indians uh, by American settlers is disingenuous at best. This was no single unprovoked event, but a series of events that led to a war that lasted five or six months. It started in August of 1862 and was finally resolved in December of that same year. Now, one could say that the conflict had been brewing in the years prior to August of 1862, and that wouldn't be wrong at all, okay? You could say that they were dishonorable and even evil men that perpetrated the struggles between the Sioux and the American settlers that led to the conflict. And you could say that Little Crow and his people had had enough of the unfair treatment and handling that they endured at the hands of the American traders and the American government. In all of that, you wouldn't be wrong, okay? But this single event, although tragic and worthy of remembering so that we can understand just how far we've come in the terms of the treatment of people of all backgrounds and ethnicities and colors, this should not be used to tear down the meaning of Thanksgiving, okay? Its origins, who celebrates it, and why we celebrate it. This crystal black owl would have us shamed into rejecting Thanksgiving Day with a disingenuous and false understanding of the holiday. She would have Americans embarrassed for celebrating it, okay? Embarrassed enough for them to reject it, all because of her misleading use of this historical tragedy that happened 242 years after the first Thanksgiving feast celebrated by the Native American Indian and the colonists. Again, this is using the sins of the past to characterize the country today. I know the real meaning of Thanksgiving is what she's pretending here. Her assertion that it's a day of massacres and tragedy and should not be celebrated because of it is the stuff of the left, folks, and their efforts to perpetuate victimhood, aggrieved status, and their efforts to subjugate the people to the judgment of a crime committed by people who never perpetrated the crime judged and condemned by a people today who never were the victim of the crime in the first place. We remember Thanksgiving's origin and the spirit of that day as it was originally intended to be remembered and celebrated. And in the next segment, folks, we're going to talk about the real origins of the first Thanksgiving, the first ever day of Thanksgiving celebrated in this country and the effort to make it a national holiday that would include every man and woman and child of this country and in this country. So, uh, I'm going to take a break, and uh, in a few moments, I'll get back to the whole Thanksgiving thing, folks, okay? So while we take this pause, uh, get a drink, eat lunch, smoke a smoke, go pee. Do whatever it is that you do, folks, but don't go away because I'm going to be right back before you know it. Booyah! 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 Booyah!
So once again, we've come to the end of another year. It's amazing how time flies when you get older, isn't it? And as you get older, you start to remember the things and people in life that make getting older not so bad. Often, I remember my times with Junior, my little boy, who isn't really little anymore. I remember the times that we'd walk for hours at the park, along the trails in the woods, and even along the railroad tracks in autumn. Junior loves the fall, because of the changing colors of the leaves, of course, just like his dad. I remember when he was about nine or ten years old, and we decided to walk along the railroad tracks up there in Tobaccoville, like we often did toward the end of a day. I remember one day in particular, like it was yesterday, November 14th. Christopher Robin and his bear. That's what that day was. Earlier that day, I had gone to take care of some things, to include putting brakes on the Jeep and to pick up the riding lawnmower from the shop. By the time I got things done, it was time. Time to get the Junior. Junior usually got out of school a little after two at that time. He then boarded the bus, and for about an hour, he'd ride around until he arrived at the daycare. And today, that day, I surprised him by meeting him there. I always loved surprising Junior because he'd get so excited. I entered the daycare and walked the hall toward the classroom that he'd be in. Junior saw me coming, and right away, it was, Daddy, yeah, you know what time it is, Junior? And without missing a beat, it's coffee time. I know, right? Get in, Junior. And with that, he quickly climbed into the passenger seat of the Jeep, and he was ready to go. I'm ready, Daddy. And together, we blew that popsicle stand. So, I can tell he's happy to see me because he's talkative, and although I can't understand completely what he's saying, I acknowledge every word. I take him to eat. Two grilled cheese sandwiches and french fries with a drink. And that's the way he orders it. No deviation. He doesn't even eat the fries, but that's okay. He doesn't have to. He had wanted to go to a cafe in Winston-Salem. I had no idea what cafe this could be, so we settled for a place called the Town and Country Restaurant, or as he calls it, the Town of Country. That's right, Junior, we are in the Town of Country. <laughs> he opens the rather large doors and in that little boy voice proclaim to the world, I'm getting stronger. That's right, Junior, you're getting stronger. Hold it open for your dad. You're gonna have to do this when I get my wheelchair. You know that, right? Yes. Good man, Junior. After we eat, we decided to go to the railroad tracks in town because for some reason, Junior always loved walking along those tracks. So we're walking along the tracks through the gauntlet of orange, red, and yellow leaves of the trees when we began our conversation. Junior, I asked. Yes, Daddy, he replied. The trees are changing colors. Yes, he said. And do you know why the trees are changing colors? Yes, he said. So I asked him, why do you suppose that is? And after a few moments, he replied, I don't know. 
Well, Junior, and with that, I began to explain. I begin to talk about climates and the effect that it has on leaves as the chlorophyll breaks down and the green colors disappear and the yellow, red, and orange colors become visible while at the same time, other chemical changes happen and additional colors come through because of the pigments in the leaves. And every so often, he would acknowledge what I was saying. As a parent, from time to time, you feel as though you need to teach them things that you know. You want to be able to show them the world. You want them to understand the world around them because that's important. That's what I think. Teach him, prepare him for the world and everything in it. And as we walked along the tracks that wind through the trees, the last of the sunlight breaks through and the brightness of day will soon be gray with the chill of November. And for a second, I remembered the illustration of Christopher Robin and his favorite companion, his Pooh Bear, walking through the Hundred Acre Wood. We were silent for a few moments when I asked him, what do you think of all of that? Seconds later, Junior stopped and bent down to pick up a reddish leaf that had fallen from its tree. He looked at it for a second and then continued to walk along the tracks through the small forest of trees. As if to reply to my question, he simply said, I like colors. And at that moment I thought, well that's it, isn't it? He didn't need to say anything else. Even if he could have, he didn't need to. I had meant to teach him something of the world, and although he didn't know it at the time, Junior had taught me a valuable lesson that day. We don't have to know anything. We can't know anything about the world. And the knowledge about it means nothing unless we first remember from time to time that it's beautiful. That the world and what happens in it should move us to notice a leaf, pick it up and say to ourselves that it is good. Junior didn't care about chlorophyll. He most likely didn't care about the climate and the chemical changes in leaves. At nine years old, he'd open the door to his thoughts just long enough to peek out and tell me just what he thought of all of that. I like colors. We walked in silence for a while and soon it was time to turn back and head home. As we walked back, I put my arm around him and said, Junior, you're something else, you know that? And without hesitation in his voice, he replied in the only way that he could, yes. And that's what that day was. Walking in the hundred acre wood, me and my special little boy, my little Pooh Bear. And that day was a good day. It's true, Doc. I'm a rabbit, all right. Would you like to shoot me now or wait till you get home? Shoot him now! Shoot him now! You keep out of this. He doesn't have to shoot you now. He does so have to shoot me now. I command that you shoot me now. Yeah. through that again. Okay. Would you like to shoot me now or wait till you get home? Shoot him now. Shoot him now. 
You keep out of this. He doesn't have to shoot you now. Ha! That's it! Hold it right there! Pronoun trouble. It's not he doesn't have to shoot you now. It's he doesn't have to shoot me now. Well, I say he does have to shoot me now! So shoot me now! This time, we'll try it from the other end. Look, you're a hunter, right? White. And this is rabbit season, right? White. And if he was a rabbit, what would you do? Yeah, you're so smart. If I was a rabbit, what would you do? Well, I... Not again. You see? You see what playing around with the pronouns will get you, folks? It's going to get your beak blown off. <laughs> All right, wise guy. Where am I? Well, we've discussed at great length the Dakota 38, which those on the left have used to recharacterize the meaning and the spirit of the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, that's a common tactic of the left with, with, with any holiday. And I'd even say that it's a tactic that the younger generations of the left are using these days. It's like they've dug into the past uh, to find a historical event that they can use to support their narratives, their leftist narratives, in order to demolish the true and the traditional, and further an agenda that seeks to divide and segregate. But I'll have none of that here, folks, and neither will you. So that's why I feel that it's necessary to get into the true origin of the Thanksgiving holiday and why we celebrate it. So, without further delay and without further ado, let's get into it. So, over the last, uh, I don't know, six years or so, uh, I've noticed a trend in the holiday season, uh, and that's where the Democrat left and their supporters, mostly younger generations uh, that have been indoctrinated uh, with racist, anti-American horseshit uh, in our colleges and universities, uh, they keep trying to recharacterize and repurpose history to affect a leftist narrative and objective, okay? Now, look... I've entertained the idea that many young people uh, out here today are merely regurgitating what they've been led to believe, okay, and that they don't even really know how they're being used by the left, okay? Like I said before, I think many young people have been taught that, we've, that the rest of us uh, have all been duped into perpetuating a white Christian male-dominated society uh, and through their so-called higher learning and education, as brought to them by their so-called educators and professors, they know the real history of America. And that by virtue of that evil history, America was not only evil in its beginning, but also in its present day. And, you know, on some level, I actually feel bad for these kids who eventually will grow into adults. OK, they've been cheated, folks. Okay, they've been cheated. They've been they've they've been manipulated. And if they ever figure out how badly that they've been misled, uh, they grow up into disillusioned people who who just might figure that they can't trust anything that they're told or trust anything that they read. Right. Uh, and where does that leave them? You know, sometimes I think that's why some of them willfully, uh, purposefully disregard anything and everything that could cast doubt on their assertions, because if everything that they believed at that point is torn down by the truth, what do they have left? And that goes for holidays, history, uh, gender, 
uh, life, okay, versus abortion, okay? Uh, once they begin to doubt what their leftist buddies have told them, it's like their whole life has been a lie. And that, folks, I believe, can be truly frightening to a committed leftist, okay? Look, kids, young people, you want to be part of something big, okay? You want to be part of something worth fighting for, uh, worth standing up for, okay? You want to be uh, some kind of rebel with a cause, then question every leftist Democrat narrative and objective and practice, okay? You'll find yourself quickly ostracized by the very people that you thought were your friends, okay? Uh, <laughs> you'll be canceled quicker than CNN Plus, all right? Uh, but don't worry, okay? Don't worry, folks. There's always two sides to that Schwartz. See, there's two sides to every Schwartz. So, we talked about the Dakota 38 uh, and Crystal Black Owl's attempt to use it as a way to undermine the history and meaning of Thanksgiving, okay? But I'm here to tell you, the history and the reasons that we celebrate such a day is much more meaningful uh, and inclusive than the ones that she tried to peddle uh, on the Book of Face, so let's take a trip in time, folks, and discover the origins and the meaning of Thanksgiving. Once again, it is time to take another revealing peek back into history. What famous date shall I set it to today, Mr. Peabody? November 1621. According to American tradition, this is when Thanksgiving really began. According to a letter from Plymouth colonist Edward Winslow dated December 11, 1621, and this was a guy who was actually there, folks. Uh, according to his letter, the colonists wanted to celebrate their first good crop of corn and barley that had been grown. And they understood that this first good crop was due in very large part to the generous assistance and teaching from the Native American Indians. So the English colonists had sent out four men to kill as much fowl as they could in one day. And they invited King Massasoit and 90 of his men so that, quote, we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. The king brought five deer to the three-day party, which 19th century New Englanders would later promote as the origin of modern Thanksgiving. But the celebration of Thanksgiving, the celebration of the harvest and being thankful for it, actually goes back in history, folks. Probably until, you know, you can go far, as far back as the days of biblical times. But let's just explore the day and its meaning as it relates to the modern day. And for that, we have to go back all the way to 1541. In 1541, we find that English settlers weren't the first to celebrate a Thanksgiving feast on American soil. According to the Texas Society Daughters of the American Colonists, the very first Thanksgiving was observed by Spanish explorer Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Accompanied by 1,500 men in full armor, Coronado left Mexico City in 1540 and marched north in search of gold. As the company camped in Palo Duro Canyon in 1541, Padre Fray Juan de Padilla called for a feast of prayer and thanksgiving, beating out the Plymouth Thanksgiving by 79 years. A second Texas town claims to have been the real site of the first Thanksgiving in America. In 1598, a wealthy Spanish dignitary named Juan de Oñate was granted lands among the Pueblo Indians in the American Southwest. He decided to blaze a new path directly across the Chihuahua Desert to reach the Rio Grande. 
His party of 500 soldiers, women, and children barely survived the harrowing journey, folks, nearly dying of thirst and exhaustion when they reached the river. After 10 days of rest and recuperation near modern-day San Elizario, Texas, Onate ordered a feast of thanksgiving, which one of his men described in his journal. He wrote, We built a great bonfire and roasted the meat and fish, and then all sat down to a repast, the likes of which we had never enjoyed before. We were happy that our trials were over, as happy as were the passengers in the ark when they saw the dove returning with the olive branch in his beak, bringing tidings that the deluge had subsided. There's also some competing claims as to what was the first feast of Thanksgiving actually shared with the Native Americans. In 1607, English colonists at Fort St. George assembled for a harvest feast and prayer meeting with the Abenaki Indians of Maine. But some historians claim that the Spanish founders of St. Augustine, Florida, shared a festive meal with the native Timaquan people when their ships came ashore way back in 1565. Prayers of thanks and special thanksgiving ceremonies were, have been, and are common among most religions after harvest and at other times of the year. For instance, in the English tradition, Days of Thanksgiving and special Thanksgiving religious services became very important during the English Reformation in the reign of Henry VIII. Before 1536, there were 95 church holidays plus 52 Sundays when people were required to attend church and forego work. Though the 1536 reforms in the Church of England reduced the number of holidays in the liturgical calendar to 27, the Puritan party in the Anglican Church wished to eliminate all church holidays apart from the weekly Lord's Day, including the evangelical feasts of Christmas and Easter. The holidays were to be replaced by specially called days of fasting and days of thanksgiving in response to events that the Puritans viewed as acts of special providence, like having a good harvest and an abundance of special blessings. Special blessings viewed as coming from God called for days of thanksgiving, which were observed through the Christian church services and other gatherings. For example, days of thanksgiving were called following the victory over the Spanish Armada in 1588 and following the deliverance of Queen Anne in 1605. An unusual bit of history here. An unusual annual day of thanksgiving began in 1606 following the failure of the gunpowder plot in 1605 and developed into Guy Fawkes Day on November 5th. The annual Thanksgiving holiday tradition in the United States is documented for the first time in 1619 in what is now called the Commonwealth of Virginia. 38 English settlers aboard the ship Margaret arrived by way of the James River at Berkeley Hundred in Charles City County, Virginia on December 4, 1619. The landing was immediately followed by a religious celebration specifically dictated by the group's charter from the London Company. The charter declared... Quote, that the day of our ship's arrival at the place assigned for plantation in the land of Virginia shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. Since the mid-20th century, the original celebration has been commemorated there annually at present-day Berkeley Plantation, the ancestral home of the Harrison family of Virginia. The more familiar Thanksgiving precedent is traced to the Pilgrims and the Puritans who emigrated from England in the 1620s and 1630s. They brought their previous tradition of days of fasting and days of Thanksgiving with them to New England. The 1621 Plymouth, Massachusetts Thanksgiving was prompted by a good harvest.
The Pilgrims celebrated this with the Wampanoags, a tribe of Native Americans who, along with the last surviving Patuxent, had helped them get through the previous winter by giving them food in that time of scarcity in exchange for an alliance and protection against the rival Narragansett tribe. According to historian Jeremy Bangs, the director of the Leiden American Pilgrim Museum, the Pilgrims may have been influenced by watching the annual services of Thanksgiving for the relief of the Siege of Leiden in 1574 while they were staying in Leiden. Now called October Feast, Leiden's autumn Thanksgiving celebration in 1617 was the occasion for sectarian disturbance that appears to have accelerated the Pilgrims' plans to emigrate to America in the first place. Later in New England, religious Thanksgiving services were declared by civil leaders, such as Governor Bradford, who planned the Plymouth Colony's Thanksgiving celebration and feast in 1623. Bradford issued a proclamation of Thanksgiving following victory in the Pico War in the late 1630s to celebrate the bloody victory, thanking God that the battle had been won. The practice of holding an annual harvest festival didn't become a regular affair in New England until the late 1660s. Thanksgiving proclamations were made mostly by church leaders in New England up until 1682, and then by both state and church leaders until after the American Revolution. During the Revolutionary period, political influences affected the issuance of Thanksgiving proclamations. Various proclamations were made by royal governors and conversely by patriot leaders such as John Hancock, General George Washington, and the Continental Congress, each giving thanks to God for events favorable to their causes. As President of the United States, George Washington proclaimed the first nationwide Thanksgiving celebration in America, marking November 26, 1789, as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, and calling on Americans to unite in most humbling offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. Devotees in New England and Virginia and other places have maintained contradictory claims to having held the first Thanksgiving celebration in what became the United States. The question is complicated by the concept of Thanksgiving as either a holiday celebration or a religious service. James Baker maintains the American holiday's true origin was the New England Calvinist Thanksgiving. Never coupled with a Sabbath meeting, the Puritan observances were special days set aside during the week for thanksgiving and praise in response to God's providence. Baker, who calls the debate a tempest in a, in a bean pot, that's what he said? <laughs> I'm talking about James Baker. He used to be a religious uh, guy here in the States, kind of evangelical. Uh, he calls the debate a tempest in a bean pot and marvelous nonsense based on regional claims. <laughs> James Baker called that debate over whether it's a holiday celebration or a religious service, a tempest in a bean pot. Folks, I'm, I'm sorry, but tempest in a bean pot? It, 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 sometimes, you know, it's tempest in a teapot, okay? That, that's, that's what's got me hung up. All right, moving right along. 
As far as the American Thanksgiving uh, goes, folks, I think most people would agree that the years 1619 uh, to 1623 is the year uh, or are the years that the celebration really took root in this country, okay? And many, if not most Americans, connect the celebration to the Pilgrims of 1620. In September 1620, a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, carrying 102 passengers, an assortment of religious separatists seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith and other individuals lured by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world. After a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing that lasted 66 days, they dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod, far north of their intended destination at the mouth of the Hudson River. One month later, the Mayflower crossed Massachusetts Bay, where the Pilgrims, as they're now commonly known, began the work of establishing a village at Plymouth. Throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship, where they suffered from exposure, scurvy, uh, and other outbreaks of contagious diseases. Only half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore, where they received an astonishing visit from a member of the Abenaki tribe who greeted them in English, no less. Several days later, he returned with another Native American, Squanto, who was a member of the Potisit tribe who'd been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London and then returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition, Squano taught the pilgrims. Now, the pilgrims, uh, you know, they'd been weakened by malnutrition and illness, okay? But Squanto taught them how to cultivate corn, extract sap from maple trees, catch fish in the rivers, and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wampanoag tribe, okay, which endured for more than 50 years and remains one of the sole examples of harmony between European colonists and Native Americans. Now, it can't be understated that if the Indians, and and specifically King Massasoit and Squanto and, and, and the Wampanoag and Potisit and Abenaki tribes, the colonies might have been doomed to die out, like the Roanoke colony of 1585. In November 1621, after the Pilgrims' first harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a feast and invited a group of the fledgling colony's Native American allies, including the Wampanoag chief Massasoit, uh, and it's now remembered as the Americans' first Thanksgiving although the pilgrims themselves may not have used that term at the time. The festival lasted for three days, uh, and while no records exist of the first Thanksgiving's uh, exact menu, much of what we know about what happened at the first Thanksgiving comes from pilgrim chronicler uh, Edward Winslow. Okay, This is the guy that I mentioned earlier. He wrote in his letter, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming in amongst us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, 
Yet by the goodness of God, we were so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Historians have suggested that many of the dishes were were likely prepared using traditional Native American spices and cooking methods. Because the pilgrims, they had no oven, and the Mayflower's sugar supply had dwindled by the fall of 1621. Uh, The meal didn't feature pies, cakes, or other desserts, which have, you know, kind of become a hallmark of of modern-day celebrations, okay? Uh, The pilgrims held their second Thanksgiving celebration in 1623 to mark the end of a long drought that had threatened the year's harvest and prompted Governor Bradford to call for a religious fast. Days of fasting and Thanksgiving on an annual or occasional basis became a common practice in other New England settlements as well. Now, we've gone through all of that, and we've gotten to the point in history where we start realizing that the nation, uh, we recognize that the nation really needs Uh, something to unify us, right? And a holiday celebration is part of that, all right? Uh, On November 26th, like I I mentioned earlier before, November 26th, 1789, George Washington, who was serving as, as the first president of the United States, took Congress's recommendation to call for a national day of thanksgiving and prayer in gratitude for the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, Washington observed the holiday by attending church and then donating money uh, money and food to prisoners and debtors in New York City jails. But the day that uh, Thanksgiving became permanently carved in stone, in my mind, and in many people's minds, uh, was in 1846, where we learn of a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale. Okay? Now, Sarah Josepha Hale, who started you know, calling for a national Thanksgiving holiday in 1827 as the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, uh, began her 17-year letter-writing campaign in 1846 to convince American presidents that it was time to make Thanksgiving official. In 1827, uh, Sarah Josepha Hale, uh, who was the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb, by the way, okay, Uh, launched a campaign to establish Thanksgiving as a national holiday. For 36 years, she published numerous editorials, sent scores of letters to governors, senators, presidents, and other politicians, earning her the nickname, the Mother of Thanksgiving. At 74 years old, she penned an impassioned plea to President Abraham Lincoln to set aside a specific day for annual Thanksgiving celebrations nationwide. It now needs national recognition, authoritative fixation only to become permanently an American custom and institution. Hale wrote a similar letter to Secretary of State William Seward, who may have been the one to convince Lincoln that it was a good idea. Abraham Lincoln finally heeded her request in 1863 at the height of the Civil War in a proclamation entreating all Americans to ask God to commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife, and to heal the wounds of the nation. To a country torn apart by the Civil War, President Lincoln proclaimed the last Thursday of November to be Thanksgiving Day. Okay, now this was according to Hale's longstanding wish. In a proclamation written by Seward, He states, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth 
in the heavens and fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. He scheduled Thanksgiving for the final Thursday in November, and it was celebrated on that day every year until 1939, when Franklin D. Roosevelt moved the holiday up a week in an attempt to spur retail sales during the Great Depression. <laughs> Leave it to a Democrat. Now, I, I, I told you all of that to get to this point, all right, of what I think about this whole thing, all right? You pretty much know, but I'm going to say it. The idea that Thanksgiving kind of masks the bloody histories and conflicts between the settlers and Indians is, of course, ridiculous, folks. Okay? Uh, These conflicts are well documented throughout history. All right? History doesn't hide these conflicts and wars that, that happened. Okay? They happened well before the official Thanksgiving celebration and well after it. The meaning of the holiday and what it represents to include the shared efforts and rewards and friendships between two peoples must not be recharacterized as a day of bloody massacre perpetrated by just one side. Okay? It must not be defined as a day that merely represents the evils of war that we perpetrated in history and benefit from today. Thanksgiving, with all of its historical meaning and significance, represents a commonality between people a shared experience of struggle resulting in the acknowledgement and blessings of those struggles. The acknowledgement that, whether by God or by human determination, we have a shared experience that includes the goodwill of human beings, whether they be from this continent or from any other place in the world. It reminds us to look beyond our differences and conflicts, to put the past in its place, and it allows us to celebrate as one people, having moved beyond those differences and conflicts to celebrate goodwill and the sharing of what we have with each other, as it was between the, uh, you know, the, the people of the Native American Indian tribes and the pilgrims so long ago in the beginning when representatives of two nations from two completely different universes became for at least one day family. So there you have it, folks. Thanksgiving. You know, there's so much more to this holiday than just turkey, okay? I could have dug into some really deep rabbit holes about this holiday and the history around it, okay? Uh, You know, there's so much history that we don't know. And like I said earlier, every time I read some, some history, all right, every time I read about some history surrounding an event... I learned something new, but the meaning of the holiday to me now means so much more than the history behind it. Now, make no mistake. We should never forget our history and we should always understand history beyond the individual events that took place in our history. And we should never use one event to characterize a celebration as something that it is not and was never meant to be. To do so results only in our continued distance from each other, a continued segregation, if you will. And if the objective in this country is to break that which separates us, then we should abandon the dishonest narratives and embrace the truth of it all. And that's all I have to say about that, folks. Okay, so. In the next segment, folks, we're going to talk about the midterm elections and what's happened there. We're fully a month uh, past 
the midterm elections, okay? And we're going to talk about what happened, how things turned out, uh, and what that means for us going into the new year. There were a lot of people out there who thought there'd be a red wave, okay, whereby Republicans would take the House and the Senate, state legislatures and governorships in very large numbers. And that's not quite what we got, was it? But don't worry, dry your eyes. Things didn't turn out exactly the way we wanted it, but we didn't exactly lose everything to the left either, okay? So we're going to dig into all that, all right? Uh, I'm not going to go too far down a rabbit hole, but we're going to talk about it, okay? And, uh, (laughs) of course, you'll have noticed that as you listen to this entire episode that we're in December now, okay? Uh, And rapidly moving into 2024, all right? And since this episode, which was intended for, you know, release in November, uh, is actually being released in December, that leaves December's episode, okay? Uh, And I think I'm, you know, I'm going to be gone in December. Uh, I'm going to be go visiting family uh, up in Yankee land. So uh, I think I'm going to revisit an earlier episode for this December, okay? Uh, And I'll get into all that. Uh, But first... Uh, let's, let's get this break underway. Okay. I'm going to take a, a, a small break here and, uh, and then we'll get back into, uh, discussion about the midterm elections and what we're looking at and, you know, just the things that are going on now and what we're looking forward to in 2024. All right. So don't go away, folks. I'm going to be right back. Booyah. Booyah. 100% pure organic grass fed AAA Alberta beef. Better believe it's Alberta beef. You got there, top sirloins? Yeah, New York's a grain fed. Three times the omega 3s in grass fed. Bought and paid for. Well, you're gonna want to mage it if they're top sirloins. Pump the brakes. Two things. One, now we'll let those sit for 10 to 15 minutes till the room temperature. Two, where's the salt and pepper bud? Don't you fucking start. S&P, the choice for me. I paid a sea hair just shy of 20 for each of these sea suckers, and I will not be told how to cook them. You paid 20 a piece for Berta beef? Only Berta beef. Well, no guff, but I wouldn't pay 20 a piece for Japanese Wagyu. Always Berta beef. Hard yes, but I wouldn't pay 20 a piece for Australian Wagyu. Gotta want a ribeye if it's a Wagyu. One inch thick top sirloin, grill at 400. Four minutes aside, down the hatch. You are fucking up, bud. That's textbook. Not without the S&P. Those fine ranchers in Alberta would be a sea hair away from not sending it here if they knew you were sprinkling salt all over the sea suckers. You're a sea hair away from getting sea sucking socked, good buddy. Montreal steak spice really should be part of this conversation. One inch thick top sirloin steak. Salt and pepper heavily. Grill at 400. Four minutes total. Flip each minute to get the good grill marks. Let sit for two minutes. Down the hatch. Flip twice. Grill marks, bud. Sacrilege. I will strike you. Blasphemy. Do you want to get striked? Finish the whole thing off with the real nice herbs and garlics, buddy. Don't fuck up my steak dinner, Derry. Any decent chef will tell you, you don't even want to let those things touch the grill. Make it drier and a fart. What you want to do, pan sear it both sides, finish her off in the ovens. Well, see, now that sounds like overhandling to me. You'd be overhandling them squirrely dan? Well, he'd be squirrely dandling. Oh, yeah, me and Gordon Ramsay are both morons. Do you want to what? Meet halfway. All right. No S&P. Flip twice. Good. Rare to medium rare. Medium rare. Warm yesterday, even warmer today. 
Met her on my CB, said her name was Mimi, sounded like an angel come to earth. When I went to meet her, man, you should have seen her, twice as tall as me, three times the girl. Oh, my fat baby loves to eat. A big old Buddha belly and a breast swing past her feet. My fat baby loves to eat. My big old fat ass baby loves to eat. What happened? Peter, you won! My god! Nobody's ever beat me at the game of drink. Now do you believe that you're my dad? Nobody but a McFinnigan could handle that much of the creature. You're the broth of me own stubby shillelagh, all right? Welcome to me family, Peter. You hear that, Brian? I'm a McFinnigan now, so let's dance! Oh, he doesn't smell like Irish Spring and he never taught me anything. But still I swell my chest and sing of my drunken Irish dad. Oh, his face looks like a railroad map and he never shuts his freaking trap. But all the ladies catch the clap from your drunken Irish dad. Ask a Hennessy, Tennessee, Morrison, Shaughnessy, Riven and Rooney, they'll tell you the same. McNulty, Mulrooney and Cotter and Clooney all feel the same mixture of pride and of shame. Finnegan, Hannigan, Kelly and Flanagan look to the ground when their dad passes by. Cafferty, Rafferty, Joyce and O'Lafferty fight for his honor and then start to cry are all infirm and our moods infect us like a germ Cause we're all the spawn of a pickled sperm And we don't tan well either From a drunken Irish dad <laughs> Regulators! <laughs> Everybody want to go boom, 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 and a zoom, zoom, or something like that. We're back again, folks, for the last segment of the show. Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? We're into December, folks. Holy flying dog shit. Uh, And it's just a few short weeks, uh, and then we're hitting, you know, 2023. All right, this is the year that we can tell 2021 and 2022 to pack their shit, all right? Get out of here. (laughs) 2023 is still going to be a tough year, folks, okay? Only two more short years, uh, and we can change the direction of the country, all right? And I, for one, cannot wait. So, uh, just an aside here, folks. I was listening uh, to a podcast the other day, and and actually, it's been around for a little while, all right? But if you haven't heard it, uh, The Guy Wire. All right, or it's just called Guy Wire. All right, I was listening to that the other day, uh, and uh, look, you've heard me talk about Checkmate with Bishop and Knight uh, and their podcast shenanigans. All right, it was always a good time with Bishop and Knight, but uh, I want to direct your attention to the newest podcast effort by Matt Knight, Chris Andrews, uh, and Kevin Bishop. All right, the Guy Wire. All right, now Guy Wire delves in some of the same stuff. Uh, as they've talked about before, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's a whole lot better, folks. And if you're looking for a break from the political and social issues and the more serious stuff that we talk about here at The Last Stand, listen to Guy Wire, folks, all right? Uh, the last three episodes 
have been very entertaining. And I found myself <laughs> talking to the radio, if you will. All right. Uh, the episode that covered uh, the election, the midterm elections and why it was so important to vote. Uh, and the most recent one, success. What is the measure of a man? All right. Uh, this episode is extremely entertaining, folks. And it gives you a perspective from the guy's point of view. In fact, it's that episode, all right, success, what is the measure of a man, uh, you know, that kind of inspired me to rethink my next episode, where I just might hang up the political talk one time uh, to talk about some of the kind of things that, uh, you know, Guy Wire touched on uh, in that episode, uh, not only from a general point of view, but a personal one. Uh, success literally had me talking to it. Uh, while I was listening to it. It was that interesting, folks. So if you haven't heard it, listen to GuyWire on Spotify, Apple, Google, uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And incidentally, uh, you can see them on YouTube. All right? They have, they have a YouTube channel, which is pretty freaking awesome. Studio looks great. So uh, GuyWire, go to it. Listen to it. Booyah. All right? Now, Midterm elections. We are one month past uh, the midterm elections. Actually, a little over a month. Okay? And uh, we're still talking about it to a degree. Uh, you know, what does it all mean? You know, what, what, what does it mean for the next couple of years? And what does it mean coming up to 2024? For those of you who may not pay attention to politics, uh, for those of you who may just, you know, they're just starting to take an interest in uh, elections, in politics. Uh, let's rehash, shall we? The 2022 United States midterm elections were held on November 8th in 2022, all right? During this U.S. midterm election, which occurred during the term of President Joe Biden of the Democrat Party, uh, all 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and 35 of the 100 seats in the U.S. Senate were contested to determine the 118th United States Congress. 39 state and territorial U.S. gubernatorial elections, uh, as well as numerous state and local elections, were also contested. This was the first election that was affected by the 2022 U.S. redistricting uh, that followed the 2020 U.S. Census. Okay, so it was a pretty big deal. All right? Now, as you all know, the Republican Party won the House. Okay, uh, We have a slight majority there. And the Democrats retain control of the Senate. Okay. Now, while midterm elections typically see the president's party lose a substantial number of seats, the Democrats uh, did a hell of a lot better than even they thought they were going to do, despite Joe Biden's extremely high disapproval numbers. I mean, <laughs> I, can't, I can't even stress this enough. His disapproval numbers, they're high. It's really high. Okay. Uh, and although election analysts highly anticipated this red wave, okay, uh, that's not really what happened here, okay? And the race for control of Congress was even close, okay? It was, it was, it was a tight race, all right? Now, as, as you may know, Republicans did really well in places like Florida. We did really well in places like Tennessee and Texas. Uh, and we also saw a surge in Republican votes in places like New York, okay? 
Uh, Lee Zeldin, I believe, is responsible for, um, you know, bringing New York closer to a conservative vote. Now, you know, obviously New York uh, has been run by Democrats forever, okay, as a lot of uh, cities have been. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, there were a lot of conservative votes that happened in the state of New York, all right, and, and in the city of New York, if you, if you really want to get down to it. Now, some say that this was somewhat offset by a so-called underperformance by Republicans in critical battleground states where voters mostly rejected extremist Republican candidates. Okay, uh, you know, the ones that were backed by Donald Trump or, or the ones that may have had questions about Trump's loss in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. All right. But don't buy any of that garbage, folks. All right. Don't buy any of that crap that Republican candidates are extreme or extremists. OK, that's a bullshit thing to say. All right. You know, <laughs> Democrats have been challenging elections of Republicans in my entire lifetime. What the hell is that? Somebody with a big-ass car out there. All right, sorry about that. Um, so where the hell was I? Now, don't buy any of their garbage, folks, okay? They've been, they've been saying that Republicans and conservatives are extremists, and that's kind of a bullshit thing to say, all right? The conservative and Republican uh, objective, if you will, all right, uh, is, of course, extremist if you happen to be a committed communist, okay, a fascist, all right? If you belong to the Democrat Party uh, and you're fully committed to it, yeah, a Republican, you know, conservative Republican, uh, you might think that that is extremist, all right? But take a closer look, folks, all right? Don't buy that garbage, all right? You know, look, ask yourself this. Uh, what is so extreme about the Republican stances on getting crime under control and funding the police? All right. What, what, what's so extremist about that? You know, instead of defunding the police like virtually every Democrat supported to, inc- to, to include the complete moron that we have as VP. What's so extreme about that? What's extreme about the conservative Republicans Uh, You know, their stance on the economy, you know, getting people back to work, stopping the idea that people can be paid to stay at home, getting the logistics and supply and employment issues back to pre-pandemic levels. What's extreme about any of that? What's extreme about getting the border under control? What's extreme about putting Americans in America, working America first? What is so extreme about that? What's extreme about being energy independent? You know, not having to depend on enemies and tyrannical regimes for oil or for any kind of energy. What's extreme about questioning an election that showed that there were highly suspect processes and polls whereby stuffing ballot boxes took place, illegal ballot harvesting took place, uh, you know, because the states... Uh, where this stuff took place, maintain the COVID measures without having gone through the legislative process to legally change their own election laws. Democrats, like I said, have challenged every election of a Republican president in my lifetime. Do we call Democrats extremists? 
Hmm? What's extreme about parents having a say in what their kids are being taught in schools? Is there anything extremist about any of this stuff? No, I, I, I didn't think so. So, moving right along. The degree of Republican underperformance during the election defied election analysts' predictions of heavy Republican gains. Given that a majority of voters were still somewhat disappointed with the performance of Biden uh, and the Democrats against issues facing the country, like the economy, inflation, crime, immigration. Okay, uh, now Democrat voters definitely trusted Democrats on the issue of abortion. All right, and they tried to make that. Uh, seem as though that was the central or one of the most important issues of this election. Well, that was horseshit, too. All right. The Democrats banked on abortion being the primary issue that could bring them to a win in either chamber and in the state legislatures. Okay, that wasn't the case. All right. But if it is the case, if this is the case, then for the first time in my life, I have witnessed the American voter vote against his or her own self-interest in favor of an issue that was sent directly to the people of the states. Okay, June 24th, 2022. All right, the Supreme Court sent the issue of abortion directly to the people, sending it back to the states. Is that extreme? You know, and, and, and that thought seems to hold weight, folks, if you look at the numbers presented by the Pew Research Poll in 2022. The Pew Research Center shows conservative Republicans and, Repu- and people who, re- who lean Republican are far more likely to say abortion should be illegal in all or most cases than to, than to say that it should be legal. All right. Now, the, the, the numbers worked out to 72 percent versus 27 percent against. OK, among moderate and liberal Republicans, which look, they're not real Republicans. All right. Sixty uh, percent say abortion should be legal while 38% say that it should be illegal, all right? I don't care what anybody says, folks. If you're a moderate liberal Republican, all right, you're not a real Republican, all right? More often than not, you're a rhino. The vast majority of liberal Democrats and Democratic leaners uh, support legal abortion, no surprise there, 90%, as do 7 in 10 conservative and moderate Democrats, 72%. No big surprise there, right? Views on abortion by gender. Uh, Majorities of both men and women express support for legal abortion. The women are somewhat more, you know, likely than men to hold this view. 63% versus 58%. Views on abortion by race and ethnicity. This is crazy. Uh, Majorities of adults across racial and ethnic groups express support for legal abortion. About three quarters of Asian people. Since when did anybody give a shit about the Asian demographic? I mean, I hate talking, you know, in terms of demographics in the first place. But like this is like one of the only polls or, or, or studies where I saw that they took into consideration what the Asian American thinks. Anyway, uh, 74% of Asians and two thirds of black adults, 68% of them. Uh, say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, as do 60% of Hispanic adults. 59% of white adults said they supported abortion. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't know. That just seems to be a lot. 
And if it is, and it, it, like I said, if this is all true, then we're in trouble, folks. All right. Uh, in uh, views on abortion by age, with adults under the age of 30, 74% say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, as do 62% of adults in their 30s and 40s. Among those in their 50s and 60s, 55% express support for legal abortion, as do 54% of those ages 65 and older. I don't know, man. I doubt that. I, I don't know. I really have to question that. If, if all of this holds water, folks, and this is just one poll, okay? I looked over a few, and the numbers differed here and there. Uh, it, you know, it depends on what poll you're looking at and what study you're looking at. Uh, and maybe I'll do a, another one. Okay, but looking at this one, it would seem that, you know, that the country supports abortion. Now, I I, like I said, I don't know. I'd like to think that we value life more than that. I've said it once. I've said it a million times. Conservatives must start affecting a change in this country, a cultural and moral change. Not only is abortion abhorrent, as it's, you know, it's murder of unborn life, plain and simple, uh, but it is a diametric adversity to our Declaration of Independence and constitutional principles, folks. Get used to hearing this, you know, axiom from me that every time we discuss this issue, all right? And friends, I want you to make this statement to your liberal friends. I want you to tell your liberal friends and abortionist friends to listen to this show and rethink their position. Of the rights that we have as free people, among these rights are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Well, in order to realize liberty and the happiness that one would pursue, they must first have life. Without life, there is no realization or exercise of any right that we have. And there is no right to abortion anywhere in the Constitution or any other founding document that we have. So don't let them fool you. It's not a right. And it's not a right that's codified by this country, by our Constitution. And quite frankly, you know, I'm not going to do it, but we could go into a biblical discussion on this as well. If you listen to my podcast episode, What is a Woman?, a man's perspective. You know exactly what I think of abortion and what I think of women and men who advocate for it. And you also know that I find irony so ironic in that those who would advocate for abortion are alive to do so. But anyway, back to what we were saying. Republicans uh, for this midterm election uh, capitalized heavily on high inflation issues, crime, uh, you know, gas prices, uh, and they gained a substantial lead in the election climate toward 2022 uh, with results similar to the red wave of 2010. But like I said, the red wave didn't happen, did it? By October, Republicans regained a substantial margin in pre-election polls, which led to the widespread predictions for a red wave, okay? Uh, including the possibility of flipping some blue seats in Southern California. All right. But again, even though we did really well and we made some really good gains in a lot of states, especially blue states, uh, the red wave didn't happen. Okay. So 
the issues that I think uh, that voters were really uh, on about, uh, the ones that they were really focusing on, uh, and these issues, I think, helped Republicans in typically blue districts uh, and counties in places like New York. Uh, These issues here, the economy, uh, you know, look, since Biden took office, uh, we've had uh, high prices on everything. We've had high gas prices almost from day one. Uh, interest rates have gone up, okay, which, which, of course, you can directly connect to the Democratic policies and Biden's policies, as well as, you know, the, the result of uh, out-of-control government spending, okay? Now, Democrats argue that inflation was, you know, linked to the global surge, the, the, the global surge of inflation, uh, that it was related to the COVID-19 pandemic-related supply chain issues, and, and, of course, the war in Ukraine. You know what's funny about that, folks? Uh, if you remember, inflation began to skyrocket almost immediately after Biden took the White House. Okay? Even during the COVID madness. Go ahead and check it. All right? Uh, but 8 o'clock day one when Biden took the White House, boom. Everything started to go up. And it all started with oil. Okay? It started with his asinine policies that reversed the whole thing, all right? Uh, The one thing that the left wants you to forget, folks, uh, is that Biden reversing every economic gain that we made in the previous administration, uh, he turned all of that into major losses, okay? We're we're now, we're, we're basically hurting right now, okay? It didn't have to be that way. The economy, the inflation in particular... Uh, remain the top issue for voters throughout 2022, which is why I'm genuinely shocked that voters voted the way that they did. If the economy inflation was the top issue for voters and the voter could tie the economic misery to the left and Joe Biden's policies and his reversals, okay, then why on earth did they vote for a guy like John Fetterman? Okay. (laughs) Why did the left maintain the Senate? All right. Why did failed governors like Kathy Hochul or Gretchen Whitmer, uh, why did they vote for them? I believe that those people who support the idiotic policies, philosophies and ideology of the Democrat Party are so brainwashed that they actually think that the high ass gas prices that we got now, the inflation across the board, the loss of household incomes and savings, uh, I, I think they actually think that it's good for the country. Either that or they actually bought the lies of the left about the cause of the economic downfall. All right. Uh, And they figure that the Democrats are the ones to get us out of that problem. All right. But but like I said, as time goes on, some eyes really got to open. All right. Here in the next two years. You know, those who are committed to the Democrat Party uh, and the left, you know, they bought the lies. Okay, about so-called extremism on the right and continued to vote left, okay, in direct opposition of what would actually improve their lives. You know what really scares me, folks? That half the country, if not more, is so indoctrinated and compensated, incidentally. Uh, They're so indoctrinated by the government that they don't want to see the gravy train go away here, all right? I mean, if you could get your $100,000 college loan paid off by someone else, why wouldn't you vote leftist? 
All right. If someone promised to make things better for you by punishing a specific gender or ethnicity, why wouldn't you vote the left? If every month were Christmas morning with free everything paid for by the taxpayers who actually work, you know, everybody except you, all right, why wouldn't you vote Democrat? According to an October 2022 Monmouth University poll, 82% of Americans considered inflation to be an extremely or very essential issue for the government to handle. And seven in 10 Americans disapproved of Biden's handling of the cost of living rise. Okay, so if that's the case, abortion has nothing to do with that. But if all of this is the case, then why in the hell did they vote the way they did? Like I said, I'm 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 genuinely confused because you had people vote against their own self-interest. They they voted Democrat. And it's and it's because it's exactly because of what I said here. They're so indoctrinated and compensated by the government that they don't want to see that gravy train go away. All right. And they will support whatever they can. Uh, you know, whatever party gives them the free stuff. And it happens to be the Democrat Party now. All right. The other issue that people thought was extremely important in this country was crime and, and, and gun violence. Now, mass shootings made gun violence and crime more important issues for voters across the country, in particular after the Robb Elementary School shooting in May of 2022. All right. Uh, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act which passed in June of 2022, provided extended gun safety laws and was touted by Biden and the Democrats, all right, as being, you know, successful. Despite this, all right, Republicans maintained a lead among voters who cited crime as a major issue. Republicans blamed the increase in violent crime and homicides in 2020 and 2021 on Democrat policies and specifically district attorneys who decriminalized crimes like armed robbery uh, and those DAs who supported no bail policies. All right. So naturally, cities like New York are rapidly becoming complete crime ridden shitholes. All right. And the people are suffering for it. Democrats campaigned on strengthening Democratic institutions, which is really a joke. Okay. Uh, you know, they said that Trump supporters grew increasingly authoritarian or semi-fascist, okay, as Biden had called them, all right, uh, since Trump and many Republicans continue to contest the results of the 2020 election, all right? Now, tell me something, folks. What's a semi-fascist? What is that? You know, the, you know people on the left love saying things like democracies on the ballot, all right? Uh, and that you need to vote Democrat because democracy is on the ballot. And that, that if, if, if the right wins, if, if the Republicans win, well, now, now, you're, now you're electing semi-fascists. <laughs> this, this, of course, is bullshit, okay? First of all, this is a republic, all right? We have democratic principles and processes, but our country is a constitutional republic. And the very fact that we had an election is proof positive that we are still a republic with democratic processes. Now, to, to, to what extent the left is undermining those processes is still being hotly debated, okay? Uh, I mean, watch 2,000 Mules, folks. Multiply that by 50 states. You can see how people would be a little concerned in this country. Do you really think Biden got 81 million votes? 
Democrats also argued that Republicans regaining power would harm U.S. governance, citing the many Republican candidates who questioned the results of the 2020 presidential election. But like I said, folks, the Democrats have made denying an election an art form. Okay, remember 2016? From day one, before the guy even got the seat warm, they denied his presidency. They never said that he was legitimate. They, in fact, said he was illegitimate. So don't buy their bullshit, folks. According to Wikipedia here, Republican-controlled states passed laws restricting voting rights and made it harder to vote as a consequence of Trump's big lie about 2020, which particularly affects minority voters. And critics say it also reflects a legacy of racial, of racial disenfranchisement. Well, that's bullshit. What idiot wrote that piece? Is it voter suppression to require ID to vote, folks? Is it suppression to require voters uh, to vote absentee in accordance with laws or vote in person with ID? I don't think so. The other uh, issue that people thought was extremely important in this midterm election uh, was education. Now, Republicans argued for parents having more control over what their children are taught in schools. All right. They were concerned in particular by discussions on topics such as race, gender identity uh, and sexuality. Now, Democrats dismissed these concerns, saying that it was a push for censorship, saying that it could harm LGBTQIA symbol for pi exclamation point students. Okay, Uh, which, of course, is horseshit. All right. Uh, Parents need to have it. Look, parents saw what was being taught to their kids during the covid pandemic. All right. Through this online education thing. Okay, Uh, I mean, I I could see some of it myself uh, with with my kid. All right. Um, And parents were rightly concerned and outraged about what their kids were being taught. And consistently, the government Uh, And your local school boards and, uh, you you know, your teachers unions, they have been trying to crush parents, you know, from having more control over what their kids are being taught in schools. All right. So that was a really big issue uh, for people uh, in this country for these midterm elections. Uh, Now, Wikipedia says that climate change uh, was a very significant issue. All right. It says that 71 percent of voters considered climate change as a very serious problem, even though there were differences in the level of concern. <laughs> climate change. Yeah, that was really important in this election. Climate change, because, you know, gas prices. Um, I don't buy it. I don't think people were concerned about climate change in this election. I think it was an extremely low thing, and it was probably a primarily uh, a leftist thing. Okay, uh, I'm not going to buy Wikipedia's bullshit saying that you know you know more than half the country was concerned uh, with that issue. And again, if half the country is really concerned about climate change, uh, you know, to the degree that your your climate uh, extremists. Uh, believe that it is, then we're in trouble. All right. (laughs) There's so much science that, uh, you know, people don't seem to want to get behind. All right. But there's other bullshit science uh, that they'll argue for all day long. 
All right. That means we're in trouble, folks. All right. But, you know, again, Wikipedia. All right. What, what are you going to do? All right. What are you going to say? It's Wikipedia. All right. Uh, Wikipedia says that according to uh, one poll, uh, 64% of the people of color were more likely to vote for a candidate that addressed chi- climate change as one of the three most important points in their agenda. Yeah, horse shit. A third poll showed that 9% of voters considered climate change as the most important issue, maybe on the left. But, you know, the funny thing about Wikipedia here is that, that they actually name zero, none, polls. They, they don't name a single poll. Not 538, not political, you know, any, any of the usual suspects in political polling. They don't name a single poll. And that's because it wasn't a top concern for the voter, folks. All right. Crime, education, inflation, uh, immigration were the top priorities. All right. Climate change was a major concern for the indoctrinated and the committed left, but not to the average voter. You know, the, the, the American people were, were concerned with, uh, like I said, crime, education, inflation, gas prices, immigration. And, and they, they want us to believe that it was you know, abortion or student loan forgiveness or climate change of all things. Okay. (laughs) Idiots. But uh, kids, I'm telling you, if you're buying this stuff from the, from the Democrats, I'm telling you, you really, really got to peel back the layers. All right. And, and just ask yourself, you know, which, which party, uh, you know, when they're in power, has been able to make life for the average American much better. It's always been the Republicans. Go back in history. Go all the way back to the Civil War. Now, like I said, the only place where a red wave manifested was in Florida. Okay? Governor Ron DeSantis blew everybody away. All right? And there's a lot of talk about him, you know, maybe running for president. I don't think he's going to do it, folks. I don't think he's going to do it this time around. But it's definitely in his future if he wants it. All right. Democrats made some gains at the gubernatorial level. All right. On the governor level. Okay. Uh, You know, uh, Wes Moore, uh, a Democrat, became Maryland's first African-American governor. Okay. In 2022. Uh, While, you know, the Massachusetts uh, governor election uh, and the Oregon uh, governor election resulted in Mara Healy and Tina Kotek, both Democrats, uh, becoming the first open lesbian governors in U.S. history. Like, I give a fuck. All right. Uh, it's it, I don't care that they're lesbian. I, I wouldn't care if they were pink Chinese. I don't give a shit. All right. What are you going to do for the state? What are you going to do for the people? That's all I care about. I don't care what goes on, you know, behind closed doors in your own home. I just don't give a shit. And I don't think most Americans give a shit. All right. It's when you start jamming that down everybody's throats that people have a problem. Now, on the Republican side, all right, uh, incumbent governors uh, performed pretty well. All right, Greg Abbott, uh, you know, he won the Texas uh, governor's election. Uh, Brian Kemp was very popular in Georgia. All right, and in both cases, uh, they defeated uh, their Democratic opponents by a shit ton. All right, by a lot. All right, uh, Beto O'Rourke. Okay, Beto. Okay, that fucking weirdo. 
he lost to uh, Greg Abbott. And, of course, Stacey Abrams lost bigger this time around than in 2018, actually. All right? And, and Stacey Abrams, here's, here's a perfect example of somebody who denied the outcome of an election, folks. All right? If you haven't heard the story, go back and look, look at it. Uh, Stacey Abrams never conceded uh, her loss in 2018. Perfect example. Now, in the Arizona election, uh, the governor's election there, Katie Hobbs won over Carrie Lake. All right. Now, that was a, a real disappointment uh, for a lot of people. And I still think that there might have been some shenanigans going on over there. Uh, I mean, look, you know, you'd like to think that you can trust the politicians, all right? But but you know from experience that you can't. And when Katie Hobbs is in charge of how the elections are run in that state, uh, <laughs> really? Um, you know, Carrie Lake had a lot of momentum. You know, she won her, her primary. Uh, she won it by big numbers. And then through this whole midterm election here, uh, I, it just it just seemed kind of weird that she lost the way that she did. I think a lot of people think that there was some uh, bullshit shenanigans going on in Arizona, all right? Just like during the 2020 election, Maricopa County and whatnot. And then we get to the one state where I never really saw uh, a real breakdown or uh, a, a real accounting of what happened in New York State and New York City for that matter, all right? Nowhere in any of the articles on, uh, that I found online did they do this. And Wikipedia, well, I mean, you know, that's a hit and a miss, you know, with Wikipedia uh, when it comes to, to uh, political stuff. But um, Republican uh, Lee Zeldin, okay, his strong performance in the New York governor's race helped his party flip three House seats uh, and then put Republicans on track to pick up two open ones, okay? And I think we flipped those, all right? What they don't talk about is that Lee Zeldin proved that he could run on a message uh, on the economy and crime uh, that resonated heavily in that blue state, okay? Uh, Republicans in New York touted Zeldin's ability to come within six percentage points of Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul, in a state with twice as many Democrats as Republicans. And his aggressive campaign seemed to have uh, a real effect in New York City uh, and in the state. Like I said, Republicans flipped two seats uh, on Long Island, in Long Island. Uh, they beat the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chair, Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, in the Hudson Valley, and secured an open seat with Mark uh, Molinaro, in upstate New York. Now, I don't remember what became of Syracuse, uh, but I think we were ahead there as well. Uh, look, Republicans' success in New York, uh, New York State and New York City, bucked a national trend, a longtime national trend. And the GOP victories in New York State, uh, you know, uh, become critical with Republicans winning the House majority, okay? Uh, the most important thing in all of this is how to win federal races in blue states. New York is so blue, it's almost indigo. And yet he managed to change the face of the U.S. House of Representatives by sheer force of will. Now, this was a quote by Mike Caputo, 
uh, a Republican strategist uh, in New York who helped lead Carl uh, Paladino's run for governor in 2010. Republicans nationwide have taken notice of Zeldin's strong run and his effect uh, on our House majority. Even in places that we came up a little bit short, uh, you know, like Zeldin's race for governor in New York, compared to Republicans in recent elections, he performed uh, very well, and he probably helped save the House of Representatives. This is a quote by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Mike Caputo uh, who's a, uh, uh, an ally of former President Donald Trump, said Zeldin pulled off a rare feat in the divisive times in politics, including among Republicans. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis campaigned for him, and he's remained, uh, you know, in the good graces of Trump. Now, that could serve Zeldin very well if he runs for the RNC chair. Caputo is quoted as saying, after running for governor in a blue state and overperforming what were average expectations in the state, he still remains an ally of the president. He didn't just thread one needle, he threaded a dozen needles. And to be national chairman of the Republican Party, you got to be in the needle threading business. Republicans made gains in virtually every demographic, all right, to include Hispanics. And while I personally dislike using racial demographics as a metric of failure or success in politics. Uh, It's it's a fact, folks. We made huge gains with the Hispanic community, especially on the issue of immigration. Fact is, with the majority in the House, folks, the Republicans can effectively put a stop to Biden, uh, to his agenda. The House holds the power of the purse, folks. And if you've been paying attention, and I know you have been, most of you, Uh, Kevin McCarthy has made it very clear that he'll use the power of the purse over many hot-button issues that Republicans want to affect. In an interview with Buck Sexton on the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton radio talk show, uh, Kevin McCarthy described his efforts and success in getting the COVID mandates removed from the military in a House vote, where somewhere between uh, five and 8,000 troops were kicked out of the Army because they wouldn't take the shot. All right. Uh, he conveyed a phone call that he had with Secretary Lloyd Austin, where he requested Austin to remove the mandate. And of course, uh, Secretary Austin refused. All right. So McCarthy went directly to the president and stated that the National Defense Authorization Act would not be funded unless the mandate was removed. Now, according to McCarthy, the president caved. Okay. And still, Austin refused to remove the mandate. Austin had argued that he wouldn't do it. Uh, and, and McCarthy said, well, you know, we make policy here, not the DOD. Call the president. So it looks like we've got someone willing to fight even for a little uh, for the American people and our military. All right. And Kevin McCarthy. We'll have to see if he secures the Speaker of the House position. But, it, but, but he looks like the sure win right now. Okay. The point is this, folks, the Republican Party and our conservative philosophies are strong and they're proven. And the Republicans have been given an opportunity to change the political and social and cultural landscape. Now, now, now it doesn't happen overnight, folks. Okay, but it can and it must happen. Okay, if we're to restore this republic, that's got to happen. Now, through all of this, what we can take away from these midterm elections is this. We've laid the foundation for 2024, folks. And in these last two years of the Biden presidency, I think that, you know, at least I hope 
okay, that the people, even those on the left, will understand that this country cannot stand strong in the world if we continue these destructive policies that, that the Democrat Party pushes. Now, the people, you know, uh, <laughs> the people that, that, that kind of bucked their, their normal voting, uh, because I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of independents voted Republican, and, and I assure you that there were Democrats that voted Republican this time around, okay? Uh, but I can tell you, you know, look, people talk all the time about term limits on members of Congress. Uh, folks, as you have proven uh, in this midterm election, you are the term limit. You effectively limited the term of several seats of federal and state politicians, and you ended the reign of Nancy Pelosi. You have the power. You are the term limit, folks. So don't be fooled by the Democrat Party and the leftists within the government who claim that the Republicans want to destroy your freedoms, right? That they want to destroy democracy. We've seen two years of Democrat policies, and we know that it's their failed policies that have, that have put everyone at a, at a disadvantage here, which is precisely what they want us to be, disadvantaged. It's the only way that the Democrats maintain their power. And in this midterm, although they performed better than even they thought they would, you showed them that their days are numbered, folks. And we better start thinking about 2024 and taking full advantage of the things that they take advantage of, okay? Like legal ballot harvesting, where it's legal, okay? Mail-in ballots and, and early voting, okay? We got to take advantage of those things, especially early voting. I really think, and I'm not sure how it breaks down, but I really think that early voting has uh, a, a real effect on the counting processes, uh, and who comes out ahead and who, you know, who, who wins or loses, basically. What we can take away from this midterm election, folks, is that, you know, look, in the end, it's on us. In the end, it's on us, folks. And I believe that we can persuade more people to join our cause of liberty and prosperity, which is why I say to those young people out there who are being taken advantage of and being indoctrinated, take an honest look at the conservative movement and the Republican Party, folks, believe in freedom? Join the conservative movement. Do you believe in equal opportunity and equal protection under the law? Join the Republicans. Do you believe in individual accountability and personal responsibility? Well, then you want to join the Republican Party, kids. All right. Do you want security at your borders? Do you believe in individual prosperity, whereby if you worked for it, you get to keep it? Do you believe that you should keep more of your money and that it's government that should have to budget the checkbook? Do you believe that politicians shouldn't be able to become millionaires on the backs of the people they serve? Do you believe that you can spend your money more wisely than government can? Do you believe that life is sacred or that your life is sacred? Do you want to believe in America as the greatest country in the world and the defender of innocent life. Do you believe in any of that, kids? Then join the Republican Party and the conservative movement, because there you will find all of these things to be true. You will find all of these things are exactly what the conservative movement and the Republican Party is fighting for. We have a lot of work to do, folks. And even though we didn't do as well as we thought we might, 
we did really good. We did really good, and we're going to do even better in 2024. Now, I think by then, even those who support the Democrat Party will have opened their eyes. Okay, how can you not with two more years of of these destructive policies from the Democrat Party and Joe Biden? And while, you know, some people on the left may lose their minds, okay, as all their perceptions of reality come crashing down around them, some will be moved to act. Some will be moved to change their affiliations. And that's where the younger generations can make a difference. Okay, if only the Republicans can demonstrate what and who they are uh, in what they do and what they say and what they stand for in principle and can demonstrate what all of that means to Generation Z uh, and the younger generations as they grow older. If we can demonstrate all of that, if we can demonstrate what we really believe and what we really fight for, if we can demonstrate how much better the conservative movement and conservatism is for this country, if we can do all of that, we can win again in 2024. And you know what's going to happen in 2024, folks. All right. Donald Trump has announced his plans to run for president in 2024. All right. Uh, so you already know that the left is going to go absolutely apeshit. All right. Uh, when he starts campaigning. All right. Uh, and I believe he's going to win. If he runs, I believe he will win. And the efforts uh, by the left uh, to, to make sure that he does not win, it, I mean, it's going to be historic, folks. You, are, you think you've seen some shit so far uh, with the 2020 elections and, and what the left did or tried to do at, you know, in 2016? You think you've seen some shit so far. You wait till 2024, folks. It's going to get crazy, all right? And this is why I say we still have a lot of work to do, folks. We made some serious gains in what used to be deep blue Democrat states and cities like New York. But the key to 2024 is going to be those who have become disillusioned by the left in these next two years, okay? One of those keys is going to be the younger generation growing up today, watching the American dream crumble before their very eyes due to the catastrophic policies and ideologies of the left. And we have to show them that there's a better way. We have to demonstrate why conservatism is the better way. And that means we're going to have to engage them and lead them to question everything that the left has fed them and to discover the things that the left has hidden from them throughout their lives. The course of action has never been clearer. The message has never been clearer. Now, is the time to resist the left and to restore the republic. Well, sadly, that's all I have for now, folks. Uh, I'm going to be visiting the fam up in uh, Yankee territory. Uh, so I'll be putting out a previously recorded episode of The Last Stand for Christmas. Okay? Uh, it, this episode is The Meaning of Christmas. So uh, keep your eyes open for it, okay? I've decided that I'm going to be keeping the name of the show... Uh, the Last Stand. Okay, so no changes there. All right. The Last Stand lives on as the bastion of unadulterated, unmitigated free speech and down on the ground American opinion right here in the good old USA. Okay. Uh, it's been a great year, folks, and uh, you've really made it that. Okay. You have no idea. All right. Uh, just an aside, 
uh, about the show before I go here. It seems as though that I have picked up a, a lot more listeners uh, in 2022 and, and about halfway through 2022. All right. Uh, I've noticed a dramatic uptick in the numbers of episodes that are being listened to. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine episode, that is the most listened to episode uh, in 2022. I thought for sure that uh, St. Kyle of Kenosha uh, would maintain that title, but uh, but no, uh, Ukraine of all episodes. So um, I'm going to have to do a quick listener report next year uh, and kind of break it down and uh, really take a look at the numbers and see what's happening. Uh, because from what it looks like, people are listening in places that I never thought that they, you know, would be listening from, you know. Uh, And it turns out that I'm being listened to quite regularly uh, in Canada, the UK, and Australia. So so thanks, guys. Uh, Awesome. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's become followers of this podcast uh, in 2021 and 2022. Uh, 2022 is officially done, uh, but don't worry. Dry your eyes. The best is yet to come in 2023. In the next episode, I'm going to take a break from the usual political discussions and historical references uh, as much as I can stand it, okay? Uh, And I'm going to talk about some of the things that came to mind while I was listening to um, Success, What is the Measure of a Man, uh, by the boys over there at Guywire uh, on Spotify. Matt Knight and the boys uh, really made that discussion interesting uh, and I think, you know, you're, gonna, you're really going to enjoy that episode. If you haven't heard Guy Wire before, go to Guy Wire on Spotify uh, with Matt Knight, Chris Andrews. And uh, in that discussion, uh, Kevin Bishop returns. Uh, so, uh, you know, listen to the Guy Wire. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Guy Wire, where you're not just one of the guys, you're that guy. So, without delay and without further ado... Merry Christmas, folks. Happy New Year. And remember, freedom never goes out of style. And I'm the coolest old guy wearing it. <laughs>